We're looking at Matthew chapter 5. We're starting in verse uh, 27. We're going to be, uh, we're in the middle of uh, the Sermon on the Mount. This is a, one of Jesus' most famous teachings. It's a three-chapter long uh, sermon in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And uh, we're going to be studying this in detail. Uh, it's going to be about four mo- months in all. And uh, so we're just going to be taking little bits at a time. So these are the words uh, of Jesus. And uh, many of these uh, sayings of his are, are very piercing, very challenging. And um, so I'm looking forward to studying them with you. So uh, this is Matthew chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 27. This is God's word to you because he is your savior. We have heard that it, uh, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your favorite members, or sorry, one of your favorite, I don't know where that, (laughs) favorite member, okay, I don't even think that's in my sermon, so I don't know where that came from, okay, (laughs) for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell, okay, cheery passage, let's let's pray together. Lord, um, uh, here are your words that speak uh, just in four short verses, speak so profoundly uh, to our culture, to our lives, to something that so many of us um, uh, struggle with. We ask that your spirit uh, would use... Uh, this scripture um, as um, a way to freedom for us. We ask that you would be our teacher and that these words would not be a burden for you tell us later in Matthew that that your yoke is easy and your burden is light, that you do not lay heavy burdens on us, but that you set us free. So set us free by your words now. Teach us. We ask for your spirit in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so we are uh, looking at a, a fairly memorable passage uh, from the Lord Jesus. Sex, hellfire, eyes getting gouged out. Um, classic kind of Jesus teaching, uh, vivid imagery. And, um, and what Jesus is doing here, Jesus, if, if, uh, if you've been a part of this series in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus continuing his meditation on that little line that he says earlier, we looked at a few weeks ago, where he says that, uh, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the, the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And what he's talking about there is that there's all these religious people in, in his uh, kind of day, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, who had a very external righteousness. And yet, Jesus' vision for his disciples, for us, is an internal integrity of heart. A righteousness that's internal. And so here, uh, uh, and, you know, apparently, in Jesus' day, the religious people said, well, you know, if I don't commit adultery, then I know that um, I am maintaining my sexual integrity if I don't commit adultery. 
And uh, Jesus is saying, calling his disciples to something far more profound, um, far more deep, of that even in our thought life, um, even in our imagination, uh, he is calling us to righteousness, to purity. And um, these words are so uh, penetrating that, you know, many, many of you maybe... Many people have said, you know, this is impossible. Yeah, you know, if anyone looks at a woman and, and has no lustful thoughts ever, I mean, you really think that that's possible. And uh, let me just say, um, you know, I'm going to have a lot to say about this passage. And um, I am going to suggest that, um, uh, that there's a kind of freedom from lust that I really think that Jesus intends and wants to give to his disciples and uh, to give to us. And uh, you, you may be here today, and uh, maybe no one knows that, that sexual sin is a major issue in your life. And um, this, a passage like this uh, can be uh, very penetrating, uh, very challenging, very troubling. And um, what I, one of the things that I just want to say at the beginning that's very important for us to remember as we go through the Sermon on the Mount is how Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount. His beginning words are, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the entry point that we walk into this sermon, is blessed are the poor in spirit. And that he wants us to come uh, to this passage poor in spirit, broken, as spiritual failures. That's what, that's what poor in spirit means, as spiritual failures, is how we enter into this passage. And so, um, as I prayed, um, and as we look at this, uh, my hope is that uh, as we look at the topic of lust, that these commands from Jesus would not be a burden to you. They would not be a weight. It would not feel uh, like condemnation that Jesus wants to pounce on you, but that there would be hope and that there would be good news in these words for us. And that Jesus would be uh, wanting to lead us to freedom. So, um, this morning, uh, three simple questions that I'm going to be kind of asking to this text uh, with you. Uh, The first is, what is lust? What is it? Second, why do we do it? And third, how can we be healed? What is lust? Why do we do it? And how can we be healed? And I think Jesus has uh, profound answers just in these four little verses. So first question, uh, what is lust? Which is actually an important question to ask first because, you know, there's been these kind of two tendencies in the history of, you know, Western culture or probably any culture is there's kind of the, uh, the irreligious view of sexuality, which basically says, listen, anything goes, have fun. Uh, you know, don't feel any shame. Uh, you know, we're, we're just, we're animals, right? Uh, you know, be like the Discovery Channel, whatever. You know, that's kind of the, the uh, irreligious view. And then there's, uh, there, then there's the, uh, the very religious view that says, you know, sex is basically a necessary evil. Um, you know, it's a dirty thing, that, but we need to get kids. We need to, um, children are a good thing. So God has given this as a necessary Thing that we kind of have to do, but um, but we should minimize our desires for it. We should, you know, enjoying it too much is kind of a dangerous place. Neither of these things, uh, these views, are what we see in the Bible. Neither, neither the irreligious view or the, the more kind of tight-laced religious view. Um, the Bible actually, of any religion in the world, celebrates sexuality 
like no other religion. And, uh, and actually, in Western culture, in, in Christian culture, the, the culture that's come out of Christianity has had the richest um, you know, poetry and literature about romantic love um, all throughout the ages. Um, it's been celebrated. Actually, you know, this was true of the Jews in the Old Testament. There's, there's a whole book of the Bible that's devoted to erotic love. That, uh, the Song of Songs is, is just an exploration on, on, uh, on erotic sexual love. So the Bible celebrates sexuality. And so the question is, what is the lust? What's the difference between that and the lust that Jesus uh, is threatening you know, can if you follow it all the way down, uh, if 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 your whole life is given to it, uh, it's gonna it, its end goal is in hell. You know, he. By the way, if you're troubled by uh, me talking about hell or just hearing it in this passage, um, you know, many people think that uh, think of Jesus as Mr. Grace. He loves everyone, um, but the topic of hell is on the lips of Jesus far more than anyone else in the Bible. Actually, if you take all the forty authors of the Bible and combine how much they talk about hell, Jesus talks about, more than, talks about it more than all of them combined. So, um, so here he gives this threatening uh, uh, passage, this warning against lust. Um, what is this lust? Well, I want to say it's a couple things. This lust is wrong passions. Wrong might be the wrong word, but we'll, we'll look at that. Wrong passions directed at the wrong people. Wrong passions directed the wrong the wrong people. So the first thing is that they're wrong passions. And look at this verse twenty eight. Jesus says, "But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart." What is that word, lustful intent? So the Greek word epithemeo. Uh, is is really a broader word than you know. When we use the word lust, we generally have sexual connotations in mind, but uh, in the Bible, this word is a broader word. You know, it's the word that translates the old, word, the old Testament, you shall not covet. You know, don't covet your neighbor's, you know, your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's uh, donkey or whatever, you know, servants and things like that. Uh, don't long for those things. And uh, this word, especially though in the New Testament, is used in a couple of ways that I think uh, highlight, um, uh, help us to understand what lust is. And the first thing is that epithemeo is used to describe our longing for God. It's used to describe our longing for God. So, for example, in the book of, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Jesus is talking about uh, his coming and people meeting him. So he is God, become a man, come to rescue us. And he says uh, in Matthew 13, For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear. You hear that word longed? That's lusted. They had a deep desire. This, uh, this desire to, for God to work, to experience God, for God's power and God's salvation to come. It's epithemeo. And, uh, and that's what, you know, I, what the, what's happening here is the epithemeo is the thing that we long for more than anything. It is the desire and the longing that overrides everything else that goes in our life. It's the one thing that would say, if I had that, then finally my life would be complete. My life would be satisfied. Um, I, you know, my life would have meaning if I had that one thing. And so uh, fundamentally, what lust is, is taking that kind of longing that should only be devoted to God and applying it to sex. Sex can give me what only, long, what only God really can. 
And so this is fundamentally what idolatry is, right? Idolatry is taking a good thing, right? The Bible celebrates sexuality. Christianity has always celebrated sexuality. It said the body pleasures are all good things. They're a gift from God. And it's taking it and taking a good thing and making it into an ultimate thing. And so there's kind of a famous uh, quote from... um, uh, uh, Where am I here? A famous quote from Bruce Marshall. I put this in on page three of your bulletin where he says, The young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. The young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. What lust is, it's an inordinate desire that thinks if I can have the experience of, of sex, it will complete my life. It will give me everything that I'm longing for. And so it's an inordinate desire and it's basically a kind of idolatry. Um, but, you know, what's interesting, though, is you look at this word epithemeo. It's also, it's not just used for our longing for God, but one of the other main uses, ways it's used in the Bible is to talk about physical hunger and extreme hunger. So, for example, in Luke 16, there's a story about uh, uh, Lazarus, this poor man, and the rich man. And it says about Lazarus, who's, who's starving. Um, um, oh, um, let's see, where... Um, I put this. I I didn't write I didn't write the verse in my uh, in my notes, but uh, he says uh, it, it says of Lazarus that that he uh, was longing to eat from the food at the rich man's table. He was starving. He was hungering for it. And uh, which is kind of interesting because in our culture, um, it's very common in our culture to equate sexual desire with the physical desire for food. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, that's kind of a common argument to say, listen, you know, this is just a natural desire we have. It's like eating. It's like drinking. It's like relieving yourself. I mean, you just do it. You don't have to have all this shame about I need to do it in per- certain contexts. I need to, uh, uh, we just need to, we just need to satisfy our bodily desires. What's wrong with that? We're animals. That's what we do, right? And that's one of the big arguments uh, in, in favor of kind of a, a liberal view of sexuality. And uh, one of the authors I was reading uh, about, uh, Lust, uh, you know, talked about the illustration from that movie back in the ni- uh, '90s called *Indecent Proposal*. I don't, I don't know if you remember that movie. It's about Demi Moore and Woody Harrelson, this young couple. They've just gotten married. They've they've uh, deeply in love with each other, and yet they're um, in extreme debt. And so this millionaire comes and uh, makes an offer to them that he says, if, can, "If I can have one night with your wife, I'll give you a million dollars. We'll clear out all your debt." So a big part of the movie is them debating, should we do this, should we not do it? And the turning point in the movie, he says, is when she finally says, it's only my body, it's not my soul. It's only my body. It's just a physical thing I'm going to do. It's, you know, it's not really my heart. My heart's really not in it. So she goes and she does it. And the whole movie is about how it devastates her whole marriage. She was totally wrong. It's not just about, it's not just like eating. I mean, eating is something that, you know, we need to live on. But eating doesn't involve another person. It's, it's, it, it's not... Anything close to that simple. It's far more profound. And um, what's fascinating is that because uh, that what lust can be, the, the, the problem with sexuality can go in two directions. You see these two versions of epithemio. On the one, on the one hand, it's we can enlarge sex and say, this, if you have this, it'll complete your life. It's as big as God. And yet, and that will be devastating. Or on the other hand, we could say, oh, we can just minimize. It's just like eating. It's just like relieving yourself. It's no big deal, you know. And just whenever you need to uh, gratify yourself, both of these errors will, uh, will 
devastate our relationships and devastate our souls. And um, so lust, on the one hand, is taking a good thing, the passions that God's given to us, and not uh, uh, using them in, in, the, in the parameters that he's given to us. And so that leads to the other thing is that, uh, that lust is not just about wrong passions, but lust is also about the wrong people. And, um, you know, Jesus is talking in this passage about the issue of uh, adultery. Um, and actually for Jesus, um, this absolutely would have meant forbidding uh, sexual acts and desires towards anyone that are, you're not married to. So for Jesus, that w- this would have clearly meant his vision of sexuality should be um, within the context of the covenant of marriage. It, 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 it should not go outside of those boundaries. And um, you can see that in uh, verse 28, he says uh, again, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery within her heart. And so um, these desires that should be reserved for one person in our life, there's one person that we give ourselves to, it should be exclusively for that one person. Jesus says that lust is about taking it outside of those boundaries, outside of those uh, uh, parameters. And um, the reality of that is that the reason why sex needs to be contained in the parameters of a marriage is because in, in, in in, in sex we are making ourselves vulnerable uh, to someone in such profound ways. We're giving them access to our souls like no one else has. And so if we're going to do that, we have to have the security of the promise that I'm never going to leave you. I will never leave you. And if we're going to give someone that kind of access to us, we need to have a total commitment on both sides. And I put another quote from C.S. Lewis uh, from you where he says, uh, the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to uh, isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. If we're going to be united to someone, we need it united in promise, mind, soul, body, all of our life, all of our possessions need to come together in marriage. Now, this is obviously uh, a very narrow view of sexuality in, in the view of our culture. Um, because our culture says that basically the most important thing about being alive, of living a good life, is that you follow your heart. You follow your desires. That's who you are is your desires. And so if, if you know, Christianity puts these parameters around sexuality and says, yo, you can't do it here. You, you know, there's only in this narrow context that you can enjoy that. Um, I'm going to be repressing myself. I'm going to be holding myself back. I'm going to be suffocating who I really am. And this is going to, you know, I'm going to be doing harm to myself. And, uh, you know, of course, as Christians, we know that that's, that's not true. Jesus never had sex, and he was the most emotionally healthy, alive person that ever lived. He was wise. He was free. Uh, he was, uh, his life was fulfilling. And so uh, that's not true that you need uh, to, to gratify whatever desire comes into you. But, um, but also, that idea, uh, G.K. Chesterton, uh, in his great book, Orthodoxy, um, talks about this issue. And he says that having a complaint against restricting sexuality to marriage, having a complaint against that is kind of like, you know, imagine this Cinderella. Uh, you know, she's, she's in her rags, and her, uh, her uh, you know, sisters are going off to the ball. She has nothing. She's bawling. Her um, fairy godmother comes and makes the mice into horses, you know, makes the pumpkin into the carriage. And Cinderella is just given this huge gift by the fairy godmother. 
And she's like, I'm going to the ball. I got a dress. I've I've got, you know, horses and a carriage. I have all this stuff. And the fairy godmother says, but you have to be back by 12 o'clock. There's a constraint. There's a limitation put on it. Imagine if Cinderella said, wait, I want to be back at 2 o'clock. G.K. Chester said, that's absurd. She's so full of wonder at the gift that's been given to her. She, she doesn't even, you, I mean, how many of us have read the story and never had a complaint of like, why 12 o'clock? Why can't she stay up till 2? That seems awful, awful narrow. And what G.K. Chester says is what we, when we have a, a wonder at, that we're even given the privilege to be with one person, when that blows our minds, it, it wouldn't even occur to us to think, well, okay, I'm sure there's a good reason for a restriction on it. I, I mean, I'm just amazed that I, I get to have this at all. And uh, there's a, let me just read you a quote. This is how he puts it. I could never mix in the common murmur of that rising generation against monogamy because no restriction on sex seems so odd and unexpected as sex itself. I'm so amazed that sex even exists. I'm sure there should be some restriction on it. Keeping to one woman is a small price for so much as seeing one woman. To complain that I could only be married once was like complaining that I had only been born once. It was incommensurate with the terrible excitement of which one was talking. It showed not an exaggerated sensibility to sex, but a curious insensibility to it. What he says is that when our culture says we want to have sex with everyone, that's not showing a fascination with sex. That's showing a boredom with it. It's a person who says, I can't believe that this is a real thing, that God invented this, that there's such gratitude and privilege that I might actually get to have this with one person. And it's that gratitude that is at the core of Jesus' ethic, is that there is an ingratitude. And because that's what the crime that, really, that Jesus really says here is that um, when our hearts become lustful, what we're doing is we're taking people and they become objects. They're not persons to us. They're not image bearers of God who are reflecting, uh, that we're becoming intimate with someone who's reflecting to us the image of God. They're not that anymore. They're an object for our pleasure. They're object for, for us to use. And, um, and so um, lust turns something that's supposed to be life-giving into a, a dehumanizing event. Okay, so this causes us to ask the question, if, uh, if lust is um, taking God's good gift and taking it out of the parameters he's given to us, why would we do it? So first, what is lust? Uh, lust is a passion that should only be directed toward God, an ultimate delight in God that we're putting in, um, uh, directing towards uh, people who are not our spouse and using people, dehumanizing them for our pleasure. So why would we do it? And I want to uh, highlight two things from this passage um, about why lust is a problem for us. The first is that we desire an experience of transcendence. Why do we give ourselves lust? Why is lust such a huge problem in our culture? It's because we deeply desire an experience of transcendence. And um, uh, one of the things that you'll notice is uh, in verse 28, I'm looking at verse 28 a lot, but he says, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, lustful intent, um, which means literally to say, in order to lust after her. If, if I, any man who looks after a woman in order to lust after her, um, what this is, it is purposeful 
looking at someone in order to stir up the desires of lust in us. And so if you were here last week, you know, I talked about anger. And uh, one of the things that, you know, about that passage in anger that's, that's an important thing to take away is that Jesus doesn't say that you shouldn't get angry. He says that you are going to get angry. Angry is a natural emotion. God gets angry. It's the question is, what are you going to do with the anger once it comes up in you? Are you going to nurse it? Are you going to water it? Are you going to help it to grow? Are you going to, uh, is it going to be your little precious? And actually, this is the same thing that Jesus is saying here. Is that lust is, um, uh, all commentators agree that what he's not, what he's saying, he's not saying that if you have a sexual thought that comes into your mind, then you've broken Jesus' command. I mean, that, that happens. You know, we're sexual, you know, we're sexual people, and that, that's going to happen naturally, just like anger is going to come up. It's when those images come up, what are you going to do with them? Are you going to nurse them? Are you going to grow them? Are you going to develop them? And, um, and that's the real question, is that um, these thoughts, these images, growing them into, uh, you know, experiences of transcendence. Uh, uh, and the reason that we want that, the reason we want an experience of transcendence is because we live in a world that is, is fallen. We live in a world that we have all kinds of disappointment. We have all kinds of, uh, you know, we have jobs that, that bore us, that don't satisfy us. Um, we have people that are hurting us, that are letting us down. Our life is filled with toil. And so we want something outside of this world, some otherworldly experience that we can encounter that, that, um, that sex promises us, that we think that sex promises us. And so we create a, a world in which we're in control. Of course, this is, uh, this is the heart of what's happening in pornography, is that this is a pseudo-intimacy, a pseudo-relationship where I'm absolutely in control of everything that happens. There's no risk. There's no risk of being let down. There's no risk of, of, of the toil. It's an, it's an imaginary world where I have absolute control. And it gives, me an ex- it gives us an experience of... Um, of transcendence. But the reason then, what that means is that the reason we want this experience of transcendence is fundamentally because we want to ex- uh, escape pain. And, uh, you know, Jesus in this passage gives these vivid commands, right? Verse 29, if your right eye causes you, uh, you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that uh, you lose one of your members and your whole body go into hell. So he gives these things. And notice what he says. If your eye causes you to sin, if your right hand causes you to sin, now, most of us are going to say, okay, is my eye causing me to sin? Is my hand, you know, are these things causing me to sin? No, they're not. But he's forcing us to ask the question, what is causing me to sin? You know, when we're trapped in enslavement uh, to sexual desires, we have to ask the question, what is causing me to do that? What is causing me to keep going back to something that's destructive, that fills my life with shame? Why would I keep going after it? And... Um, And one of the things that it's important for us to know as a community, both as individuals as we wrestle with this, but also as a community as we help one another uh, wrestle through uh, sexual sins and through lust, is that generally the reason for lust is not simply a desire for pleasure. It's not simply a desire for pleasure. There is something deeper going on. And actually, I was talking to a guy recently. He's kind of a, a, you know, an associate pastor at a church down in California and does a lot of discipleship with men uh, who are struggling with uh, sexual sins. And he says over and over again, he finds that the real thing that's leading people into sexual sin um, is not desires, things like anger. They're really angry. 
And uh, so they go and they make a world where they're in control. And, and they end up acting out by lusting. Or, um, or uh, the other example um, he gives, uh, you know, when people feel like they have no control of their life. Their life is not going in the direction they want to. The dreams that they have, are uh, they feel disenchanted. They go to a world where they feel in control. And uh, actually, he told me uh, one story about a friend of his who he had been walking with, who had been struggling with pornography. And uh, the, the friend came and confessed to him that he had stumbled again. So he started asking me, oh, so t- take me through what happened in your day. He said, well, you know, right before I was over at this, uh, these friends' house, this couple, um, and they're married, and, and, you know, they have this great marriage. And we had a great night together, and I was just like, wow, this is a great picture of what marriage can be, and we just had such a good night. But then I was driving home, and I got flooded with all of these ideas that maybe I'm going to be alone my whole life. Maybe I'm never going to have that. I just enjoyed how beautiful it is, and maybe God doesn't want me to have that. Maybe God's going to hold that back from me. And it was in that despair, uh, it was in the mindset of fearful despair that he found porn irresistible that night. And so the real issue um, was not a, simply a desire to have pleasure. Um, there's a deeper heart issue about the question, does God have a good life planned for me? Does God want good things for me? It was a far more profound question that was leading into lust. And so we, Jesus calls us to ask the question, what is causing me to lust? And um, usually, actually, I was talking with another uh, pastor in town here this week who, who runs a, a recovery um, uh, program. And I, he was kind of comparing a sexual addiction with substance abuse. And uh, one of the things he said is that even though initially in both these situations there is... Um, a, you know, a desire for pleasure or some kind of high, when someone comes into a sustained addiction, it's no longer a desire to be high. The desire f- from either uh, from lust or from uh, substances is simply to feel normal. Is because there are certain feelings that we have that we don't want to feel, and so we need something to deliver us from those feels, from those feelings. And so the question, when we're dealing with lust, or you're talking to someone who's confessing lust to you, we have to understand that what is the other things? What are those feelings that we're running away from that we don't want to feel that, that are putting us uh, towards this lifestyle? And uh, what that means is um, that lust, the root of lust, the root sin of lust, is ultimately unbelief. I don't believe that God wants good things for my life. It's when that is the overriding reality of my identity is I cannot trust that God is going to give me good things. I need to take control of my life. I need to take, uh, make worlds where I am in control because I can't live in this world because I'm out of control. And God's not in control and he's not, he's not taking care of me. And it's this heart issue of unbelief that we need to turn back to God and say that God loves me. God can be trusted. And that's what we need to tell one another is people can confess to us their lust is what we need to get to that heart issue is where is the place that you don't trust that really God really wants good things and to turn to him. And so this leads uh, to the third question we're going to ask is not just what is lust and, and not just what, uh, why do we lust. It's oftentimes is not a desire for pleasure, but this, this fundamental question, how then can we be healed of it? If we are stuck in a cycle of lust, how can we be healed? And, um, you know, I'll 
to be, uh, you know, candid with you, a sexual sin has not been a uh, one of the, you know, big sins in my adult life. But um, as an adolescent, this was a, uh, a serious um, uh, addiction uh, for me. And I it seemed like an impossible cycle to get out of. And I, you know, I'll tell you, even at that time when I was not a Christian, I, I didn't grow up in the Christ, Christian church. I'd never read this verse about Jesus that you shouldn't have lustful thoughts. I never knew any of that. And yet I still had a tremendous amount of shame around this issue. And I think even if you're here, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, and if this is something that you're, you're wrestling with, I, I, um, I just know that, that for many people, there's a question of, is there any freedom from this? Is there any liberation? And um, so I do think that the Bible and that Jesus wants to lead us out, lead us out of, of enslavement um, to lust. And I want to look at a few things, two things, that Jesus really does call us to, first of all, practical solutions, that there are practical solutions to lust. But also, he leads us to the gospel solution, which is the most profound thing that we need for lust. So first, what are some practical solutions if we're wrestling with lust? The first is this, is that we must be honest. We must be honest. That is the beginning of dealing uh, with any sin, but especially with lust. And because of the shame that goes along with sexual sin, we want to hide it. We want to keep it dark. We want to say that I can manage it. I don't need to tell anyone. This will get better eventually. But the most important thing is, first of all, that we are honest with God. And, and you know, one of the things, this is a very memorable teaching of Jesus, right? He says, if your eye, right eye causes to sin, tear it out and throw it away, lest your whole body be thrown into hell. What's so... Jesus' teaching is so powerful because that image just gets burned into your memory. You're not going to forget that. His disciples, when they heard that, they're not going to forget that. Wow, ripped the eye out. I was visualizing that when he said it. And so he's burning this into their mind to, for them to, to be vigilant, to, to, to look at it and say, what, is there lust in my life? And to face it and to look at it and to acknowledge it to God. And so the first, um, the first step is to acknowledge to God that lust is a problem in my life. And when we do that, what we're beginning to do is when we acknowledge it, what we're beginning to do is we're beginning to desire something more than what our life has been. We're beginning to say, it's possible that this doesn't have to be my life. I desire God's kingdom, and the kingdom is stirring and desiring in me. And so this is, as hard as that step is, when you do that, all the, already in the beginning, you are creating new desires in your heart and replacing these old desires. And that's the big thing, is replacing those, uh, uh, the lustful desires with new desires towards God. And um, you will only long for more when you face the reality of sin in your life. You'll, re, you'll long for newness in your life. And Gary uh, Schomburg, he's written a book called False Intimacy, which is a really helpful book on sexual sin. He says this, you must face the truth that the shining, untarnished image you offer, and uh, to, the shining, un- untarnished image you offer to others is a heinous attempt to deny your sin. And it's a heinous attempt to deny your need of God's mercy and grace. When we deny uh, the sin that's in our lives, uh, we are shutting ourselves off from the opportunity to experience God's grace and mercy. So um, when we're honest, though, what's going to happen is we're going to realize that also we need to ask for help. 
when we are wrestling with something like this in our lives, we need to ask for help. And that's the second practical step, is that you must pursue community. Isolating yourself will be the worst thing in dealing with sexual sin. And uh, John Stott, who's written about the Sermon on the Mount, actually talks about how this sermon is not something for individuals. It's not just saying, here, uh, Nate, this is Jesus' vision for Nate Walker. It's not that. It's Jesus' vision for the community of his disciples. This is something that he intends for us to live out together. And um, so we need to talk with one another. We need to confess to God. We need to confess to one another. And let me just tell you, you know, a few things on when people confess to us and when you're confessing to others. It's important to be specific. Exactly what happened. How has lust been manifesting itself? Not vague generalities. Yeah, I'm struggling with this. Uh, what exactly happened? This is what's going to make, uh, this is gonna be, will be devastating to your sin. It will crush your sin if, to, to make actions like that. But also, when someone confesses to us or we confess to one another, there's a time of grieving that sin is in our life. We shouldn't just say, hey, Jesus loves you. Don't worry about it. Try not to do it again. You know, just say no. Not just say no. We grieve and we say, there's a loss in that. There's a loss that I've been given over to this. And, and I, I should feel a grieving of that. And it, we shouldn't stay in that grief. We go to Jesus and we find out that Jesus has died for all my lust in the past and all my lust in the future. Everything I will ever do, um, we go to that. But it begins with a sense of confession and honesty with one another. And that happens in community. And I'll tell you another reason why community is so important is because many of us have grown up in a context where the understanding of sexuality is nowhere near what the Bible teaches. You know, uh, maybe you grew up with a dad who had a, you know, had magazines laying around, or or the way they talked about sexuality was uh, was uh, was dirty. And um, these kinds of things, we don't know what healthy sexuality looks like. But when you're in community, you begin to see families, you begin to see marriages uh, of this is what God intends for marriage and, and, and for relationships. And it gives you a new vision, and it gives you hope as well. And that's why it's really valuable, you know, when we have home groups, to have home groups with, you know, if you're a college student, be in home groups with people who have families, who have healthy families, who have godly families. If, if, if you didn't grow up in, in a Christian home, or you didn't grow up with a, a picture of, of what healthy sexuality is, being around people who have healthy relationships will be so valuable to you. And the, and the other thing is this, is that lust is not just tied to relationships uh, sexual relationships. But lust impacts all of our relationships, and, and it works the other way around. Because if lust is primarily about creating a false intimacy, a pseudo-intimacy, an imaginary world where I'm totally in control, anytime you step into real relationships, you are pushing back the effects of lust. Real relationships will transform your heart. There's a, there's a great quote from Robert Fair Capon. He says, one real thing is closer to God than all the diagrams in the world. One real thing is closer to God than all the diagrams in the world. Let me just tell you, one real person is closer to God than any computer screen or TV screen. Real people will bring you back into the reality of God's world and that God's in control. And so we absolutely, we must pursue community. Community will give a substantial blow to the power of sexual sin in our life. But third, another practical thing is that we must remove stumbling blocks. There is, I mean, you can't get away from this text where Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, rip it out and throw it away. There's going to be actions like that. It may be, I'm going to take my internet and I'm going to throw it away. You know, the eye is this image of intake. What is coming into your body? What is coming into your mind? 
What are you letting come in? Uh, you know, uh, you know. For Shannon and I, if we watch a movie and there's a there's a sex scene in it, we don't say, "Oh, we can handle it." No, don't watch it. You know, if you're sitting with other people, you think it's weird to turn your eyes away. Turn your eyes away. You can't handle it. We can't handle it. And uh, and there there, uh, Jesus is is insisting that we're, there's going to be an action, a practical action of removing ourselves, throwing things away that are leading us into temptation. There's going to be an, uh, a part of that as we wrestle. Uh, with sexual sin. So, um, uh, you must be, vig- must be vigilant. Um, but, let me just say that these practical steps, I think they're necessary. But, if the root of, of sexual sin is actually not pleasure... It's all these other things about anger and my life feels out of control and maybe God's never going to give me a family and it's really this unbelief, is God really good? Then the main thing is I do need practical solutions. They help, but the deeper thing I need is the gospel solution. It is the gospel that speaks to that profound heart issue that's, that con- continues to lead me into sexual sin. And um, Because one of the things that you see in this passage is that, you know, Jesus says if your eye or your right hand is causing you to sin, and you need to be mutilated. It needs to be cut off. It needs to be ripped out. And I think there's a sense that some of us feel that. You know, when you're wrestling with sexual sin, it's just like it's coming out of my body. I can't even control it. And I need to, like, you know, hurt myself. I need to, like, scratch. I need to, you know, feel some pain because my body has this problem. And and it just does what I don't want it to do. And so we feel the sense that maybe I need to be mutilated. Actually, people have done that in religious communities. They, They beat themselves. And they're trying to get these desires out of their body. And uh, the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 7, he, has, he kind of summarizes that feeling. In chapter 7, he's talking about wrestling with sin. And he says, I do the things I don't want to do. Why, I don't know why I do it. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this body of death? And it's this dilemma. Because on the one hand, it's in the body that God's made us to enjoy his world and to enjoy life and to enjoy relationships. And who he is, the, the, the Bible celebrates the body. And yet it's my body that causes me all these problems. And so what am I going to do? But what's amazing is right after Paul says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He has this amazing verse in Romans chapter 8. Just, just a few verses later, he says, God, by sending his own son... In the likeness of sinful flesh. An amazing verse. Jesus lived in that flesh that we're wrestling with. Those desires, those images that were popping into our our minds, those images were popping into his mind. That's the reality. He had to face those. God, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, it's kind of a mysterious verse, but I'm not sure everything of what it means. But one thing that it seems to say is that Jesus' body, he carried our sinfulness in his body, and he was mutilated for us. The body needing to be ripped and torn, it happened to him, and our sinfulness was murdered in him. It was killed. It was crushed. And he took the guilt of our lust. He took the, um, the, uh, the power of lust in us. He nailed it on the cross and it was crucified and it died and somehow he's given and then he was raised from the dead. The spirit rose him from the dead and conquered the power of sin and now that power lives in us. And that may sound abstract but what that means 
is that we need to be rescued from our sin. We need what Jesus uh, has done for us. We need the gospel that crushes the power of sin within us. And this is a deeper solution than any pragmatic kind of, you know, um, practical solutions because what it does is it gives us a new identity. My old life has died with Jesus on the cross and I now live with him in the power of the Spirit. His Spirit is alive within me. This gives me hope. This gives me identity. This gives me truth. And, it, you know, because if the real problem are these lies that my life's out of control and that God doesn't care for me, then what I need is the truth. And so how can I say God doesn't want good things for my life? I can't, if, I really, if I really believe the gospel, God sent his son to be crucified for me so that I could have eternal life with him. He wants good things for me. He cares about me. He didn't just forget about me and my sin and my hopeless life. He came after me. He put Christians in my life. Um, you know, if I, um, if, my, if I say my life's always going to be terrible, I can't believe that because the gospel gives me a new truth about who God is and about who I am. And, um, and so through the gospel, God gives us new desires, new loves. We begin to love new things by his spirit. And so where is the healing of lust? It's in this combination. You see the combination. It's a combination of the gospel, changing our identity, God giving us his spirit. But it's also in this community with the church, with other people. God has surrounded us with tools and ways and pathways to be led out of this. And so as I come to a conclusion here, I want to take a moment to invite all of us to repentance. Because that is a gift, that is the beginning of this new life, this transformation, is to repent. And if, if fundamentally the, the sin that's under my lust is unbelief, does God really care for me? Then the beginning of repentance of our lust is to go and to believe that I believe God loves me. God loves, wants good things for me. My sin has died on the cross with Jesus. I have been given his spirit. He has prepared good works for me. He does work all things for good for those who love him. This is the new truth. And repentance is putting to death the passions of the flesh and now embracing the gospel and resting and trusting in the gospel. And so I want to invite you, believe, trust in Jesus, turn from your sin, and he will transform us as a community. Let's pray together. Our Lord, your eyes see into all of the secrets of our life. Nothing is hidden from you. And yet you are not scared off by those secrets. You love us as your children. You want to purify us. Teach us what it means to put to death our earthly, fleshly desires, and then to desire your kingdom, to desire the fruit of your spirit in us. Fix our minds on heavenly things, on Jesus, our Savior. I pray for those who are here who are wrestling with sexual sin and maybe that no one knows about. I pray that you'd give them courage. I pray that you'd give them a desire for something more in their life and a hope that you can give it to them. I pray for those who have put their hope in you many times before, 
and fell and fallen again and again and again. Lord, repentance is our lifestyle. I pray that you give them the courage and the hope to repent again and to look to Jesus, to not lose heart, and to continue to throw themselves on the grace of our Savior Jesus. So teach us, and I pray that as a church, we could be a church where we could hear confession from one another and we would not be in fear. We would not run away from confession. We would pray for one another. We would grieve with one another. We would give the promises of God to one another. Teach us. Lead us into this life, into this easy yoke that you say this is, Jesus, into freedom as your sons. In Jesus' name, amen.